Good evening, everyone. My name is David, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Dave. Through the actions of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't had a drink since January 26th of 84. I'd like to thank Bill and the committee for asking me to speak. Uh, I'd like to thank Marty for being my warm-up. Um, my dad was born in Saskatchewan, um, and he did tell me how flat it was. So we can tell Marty that I was listening. I'm here tonight because I threw up on my dog. <laughs> now, there are other reasons that people call Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not sure what you do when you throw up on your dog, but I called Alcoholics Anonymous for the second time in my life. First time I called them, I was in a blackout, and I did not know that I had called Alcoholics Anonymous. I was in Des Moines, and the next day at my work, some stupid little member of A&A showed up and was asking for me and proceeded to say, I talked to you on the phone last night for about 45 minutes, and you said to please come and help you. Really? <laughs> well, that was all a mistake. So uh, I got, got rid of that guy right away. Second time, uh, you know, having one of those bad days. I had drank for two or three days in a row and was laying in my bed and knew I was going to throw up and leaned over the edge of the bed and, and was going to throw up on the floor. And I threw up on the only thing that I loved and that still loved me. And that was my dog. And I got sober real quick at that moment. I'm in the bathtub with Britton, a long-haired Sheltie, trying to wash the puke off of the dog, and the dog is going crazy. And I went to the phone, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. And they sent two guys to my house. And those two gentlemen came, and, and I remember the, the one guy walked in, and he said, how many people live here? And I said, just me. And the, the first wife had moved out the year before and had taken all the furniture. I had a little card table in the kitchen and a little 10-inch black and white TV uh, that I still have in the basement of my house now. And the living room, there was no furniture in there, so I just threw the dead soldiers in there because you hate to keep making all those trips outside. And I don't want the garbage man to think I have a problem with alcohol. So um, he... Uh, he was pretty amazed when it was just me that was living there by myself. Um, and that was about as good as it was for me at the end. So I came to Alcoholics Anonymous a virgin, pure and untouched by treatment or AA. I had no idea about anything, really, other than the fact that people had told me for years, you should go to AA. There's something wrong with you. They can help you go to AA. Well, that's a good enough reason not to ever go near you damn people. I don't like people telling me where to go and what to do. So I, uh, I, I listened to those guys, and the next morning I, I went to my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have not had a drink since then. In general, my sobriety kind of had themes. Um, and, and before I get to those, I, I have some other people. I, I'd like to thank all the, all the people from my home group, the 24-hour group of Alcoholics Anonymous, which meets at 735 on Sunday night at St. Leo's Church. Um, 
We have a, a great, great meeting there, and, and I'd like to thank my sponsor, and who's going to be a great audience, as you can already tell, uh, and, uh, and my wife for being here tonight as well. My, uh, my drinking had, had themes. One of them was I got arrested a lot. Uh, I'm an unlucky alcoholic. Uh, I was arrested 36 times for various alcohol-related offenses. I had 60 DWIs. I had one in Minnesota. Um, no, I missed Minnesota. I had two in Wisconsin, one in Illinois, one in Iowa, and one in Nebraska. My last in Nebraska, I was .38. I hit 10 parked cars on my way home from the Rusty Nail on 144th and Pacific. I got all the way to about 77th and Seward Street, and I started doing bumper cars down Seward Street because, you know, those stupid sober people that had perfectly good driveways and garages left their car on the street. I wasn't hitting them really hard, but I evidently hit many of them. Um, I went through 72nd and Seward and, and went through a red light there and caused one car to run into two other cars, and then I, I made it home. Um, I, I went inside, and, and I took off my clothes, and I, I thought, I, I think I hit something. And, and so I, I went back outside to check my car, and it, it, was, it was bad. Uh, I'm missing, well, the grill and the front, front bumper and headlights and, and things that should have been there when I, when I left the rusty nail. And I had also, at some point, lost my uh, license plate, and somebody had called it in. And so the police pull up while I'm in my underwear looking at my car. <laughs> And I can't run very well when I'm drunk uh, to get to the house, and so they proceed to do the sobriety test in my underwear. Um, and uh, the, the first wife was there on the porch, and, and she was being comforted um, by the police officers, and she was crying, and the neighbors were all outside. And, and, um, and I, I know this because when my, my wife and I now, when we left that neighborhood, they had a going away party for us and they were still talking about how crazy it was when David was drinking. I, I yelled at my, my wife to get her ass back in the house. She was embarrassing me. They stopped the sobriety test and put me in the police car and took me downtown. I, uh, I, I get downtown, I, I blow in the breathalyzer, and, and this big old sergeant says, well, this, this machine must be broken. Here, blow into this one. So I blew into the other one because he could not believe I was .38 blood alcohol, and I could tell him whatever he wanted to know. Whatever he wanted to know. And, uh, and he, he said, my, my goodness, you're really drunk. Well, I said, well, I've been a lot worse than this. <laughs> I've been a lot worse than this. I still can't drive in the state of Wisconsin. I had signed a, a paper there saying I would never drive in the state of Wisconsin again, which was really common in the 70s and 80s. If you're just bad, they would just say, you are really bad. Sign this. And so I, I did show them. I didn't want to go to the Dells anyway. Stupid place. <laughs> Cattle and cheese, give me a break. 
Another, another little problem I had was, was with women. I, I didn't have a problem necessarily with women. I was engaged to eight women in eight years. I was engaged to two women at once. You have to have a pretty fast backfield of an alcoholic to be engaged to two women at once, but I counted one of them. Uh, I didn't count the other one, but funny, she counted herself. Unbeknownst to me, they had a mutual friend, and they showed up at my apartment one night yelling very hurtful things. They said very hurtful things to me. And I, of course, had been drinking, and I can remember this like it happened this morning. I yelled, just shut up and I'll pick one. <laughs> not so good. Not, 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 not so good. These were nice women. If, if some of the young men here, if you're going to plan on doing that, you need a plan. My plan was even numbers got a ring. Two, four, six, and eight got a ring. One, three, five, and seven. I'm sorry, you're odd. So uh, they didn't get a ring. Um, in, in general, the women would either get tired of my drinking or I would get tired of them complaining about my drinking, and then I would have to get a new one. And getting a new one didn't seem to be that big of a deal. The better looking she was and the more you were impressed that she was with me, the better I felt about myself. So I always had to have one right here. And I, I, I maintained that for a very long period of time. And I hurt a lot of people in doing that, a lot of very, very nice women and their families. I could be a, a bridal consultant. Um, I made lots of wonderful decisions through the years on invitations and colors and flowers and, and, and things of that nature, but um, not so good. Uh, that fiancé number eight um, was the first wife, and I uh, was working at a large department store in Des Moines and had been there for a, a while, and um, this woman came down to the department where I was working, and she said, would you like to go to a party tonight? It was a Friday, and I said, sure. Thanks. We went to the party. Um, we slept together. We got up the next morning. I went to work. She came down to the department. She said, there's another party tonight. Would you like to go? I said, yes. We went to the party. Sunday morning, I wake up. I'm at her apartment. She's on the phone talking to someone, telling them that she's getting married. And it was to me. I didn't know her last name. The only things I knew about her was her first name, where she worked. She had a nice car and a big white cat. That's about it. That's about it. She was not alcoholic. However, in her family, she had three sisters, and all four sisters had married alcoholics. And I was to be the fourth brother-in-law. You'll all be glad to know at the family reunions, I was the pick of the litter. I was the worst. They, the sisters decided that. But um, she wants to have this hurry-up wedding before school starts because her, her sisters and families can come to this wonderful, joyous occasion. So we got married five weeks later. I was so drunk at the wedding, I could not stand up. I got married sitting in a chair in the front of a church. 
the best man and the bride each took an arm and, and held me up so I could say, I do. We're off to a great start. She wouldn't trust me with any of the wedding plans, however. The week of the wedding, she asked me if I would take this envelope to the bakery. Can you do that? Sure. It's my day off. I can do that. Anything to help. As an alcoholic, I made a mistake and went in the afternoon instead of the morning. So, you know, by the afternoon, I had been drinking all day. And I get to the bakery, and we're paying for most of the wedding. And, and I asked how much the cake was. And even that long ago, cakes were just, it was just criminal what they were going to charge us for this wedding cake. And so I demanded to know how you can do this cheaper. I'm not going to pay for it. $400 for a stupid cake, are you kidding me? And people are coming out from the back, and I'm making a scene, of course, because you know how I am, and I'm, yeah. And this one lady, uh, who I've always known as Gerda, she wasn't Gerda's bakery here, but this lady with a heavy accent says, well, for outdoor weddings, sometimes we frost styrofoam, and then we serve sheet cakes. Really? Now, this is good news also for you if you're considering this. Styrofoam, it was less than half price. <laughs> and I want you to know they can do really nice frosting on the, on the styrofoam because it's such a hard surface, really big roses. It photographed beautifully. <laughs> Will you tell the bride? Sure. Uh, I forgot. It was a busy time. It was a busy time at our house, you know, getting all that wedding stuff in place. So we're at the, at the wedding, and uh, I have said I do. I had a beer in each pocket, and so um, it was on July 30th, and, and it was hot. It was so damn hot. And she had planned on doing this wedding reception receiving line down the steps of the church outside as people left. And... And so we were standing out there, and I opened one of the beers because, for God's sakes, give me a break. You know, I can shake hands and drink a beer. I can do just about anything and drink a beer. Um, and so she, of course, that, she was very upset by that and, and started crying, and everybody was comforting. All of her friends were comforting her, and my friends and I are all standing over here. And, and, and so she refused to ride with me to the reception. We're, we're not off to a good start here. Um, and so my friends and I are all in one car. We're, we're, we're smoking pot and drinking Jack out of a bottle. And in the other car are all the criers and the comforters. And we get to the wedding reception, and I had not had the opportunity to meet my new mother-in-law yet because they had just driven in that day. And I, I remember when I was looking around in the church, I thought it might be that little gray-haired lady with the big flower. I thought that might be her, and sure enough, it was. And she comes teetering out of the reception hall when we get there, and she's yelling, the cake is styrofoam, the cake is styrofoam. And I thought, you bitch, you told. <laughs> and the bride said, that cake better not be styrofoam. I said, I think it is. <laughs> Pretty sure that cake is styrofoam. She never forgave me for that. I, I, you know, I would do things throughout that marriage, and it, it wasn't just what I had just done. It was everything I had ever done would come back. That's why I can remember these things so clearly. 
is because it would be that full litany of things all the way back from the wedding cake all the way through everything else that I had done. Uh, and and I, I did a lot. I did a lot. Um, I was working in Des Moines, and, and I came home from work one day, and she said, you have to quit your job uh, tomorrow. We're moving to Omaha. We had never talked about it. She said, I took a promotion to Omaha. I'm getting you away from all of your friends. That's the problem. And two weeks later, I find myself in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, and that was how I, I got here. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty flexible, you know, and I like people and people like me. And so it wasn't like I can't make new friends, and I, and I did very quickly. I had my first drink when I was 18 years old. I had not drank in high school uh, and had my first drink it was Schlitz beer on a gravel road outside Old Wine, Iowa, with Carla Wasty and Julie Ortkes and Mike Tweedy, and um, I, they were upperclassmen. I was a freshman, Julie Ortkes, with big brown eyes and a big T-shirt, said, uh, "Would you like to go out with us tonight?" And I said, "Sure." I look like I'm about 15 years old, and I knew she was a sophomore, and the others were juniors. And and you know, I, I drank that beer, and and I got drunk, and I threw up, and made out with Julie, and I don't know what order all of that happened. Um, um, and the next day, they told me how much fun I was, and would I like to do it again that night? And I said, "You bet!" And I was off and running. A characteristic of my drinking is I can drink a lot. And when you don't feel very good about yourself and you don't feel that you're quite as masculine as you should be and quite as big boy as you should be, I got a lot of attention for being able to drink a lot of alcohol. And that really fueled me. Really fueled me. I, I drank a lot in college. But I also go to school very well, either drunk or sober, it seems. And I, uh, I did very well in college, and, and I, I started teaching high school and was a high school teacher, a drunk high school teacher, um, for three years. Um, and, um, you know, that, that didn't go very well. There were, there were problems with, with me and, and, and being a drunk. And so I... I got out of teaching, and when I, I got to Omaha, my first job was in retail. I was the assistant manager of the basement of the downtown Woolworths department store. You cannot go lower in retail management anywhere. And some of you remember that old store, and it was, it was a scary place, um, and, and I am in the basement, okay? But lucky for me, the manager was an alcoholic and the other assistant manager was an alcoholic and my goodness, you put the three of us together and we are a retail machine. <laughs> and so we had to work between 11 and 1 every day and then at the rest of the day, we went to the Canopy Lounge across from what is now the, the bank there and, and the hotel and, and we drank in the old Canopy Lounge and buy pitchers of beer on Woolworths department store and. I thought I was just fine, just fine. Um, wife seems to be enjoying her job, and so I decided I, I maybe I would try teaching again, and I got a job teaching at a Catholic high school here. I don't know how I got the job 
teaching at that school. I didn't give them any references, and they still hired me. They were really desperate, that's all I can figure out. Um, I did pretty good for a while. Did pretty good for a while. Um, that During that first year, I, I'm, I'm drinking quite a bit, of course, at home, but I'm not drinking at school. <laughs> and um, I, I had a, a moment on a, a Saturday morning. I, I woke up early, and uh, I thought, you know, if, if we had a, a child, I bet I wouldn't drink. But she did not want to have any children with me because of the kind of alcoholic that I was. She had made that very clear. And so she went to work that morning, and I decided I was going to go find a baby. I couldn't find a baby, but by 3 o'clock that afternoon, I had a 14-year-old Native American son. Now, you have to be pretty resourceful alcoholic to get one of those. <laughs> I got on the phone. I called some people. I found a little Native American guy who had gotten kicked out of Boys Town. He was living at a convent over off of 33rd. And I knew one of the nuns there. And I called her. And she said, well, sure, come on over. He do- he's not very happy about being here. And I walked in there. And she said, would you like to go home with Mr. Hoppy? And he said, yes. I had my boy. (laughs) He was just cute as a bug. Just as cute as a bug. I hadn't talked to the wife about this. (laughs) So we're at home. We we dribbled the basketball. We didn't have a, a hoop yet, so we dribbled the basketball up and down the driveway. And I'm just like a dad. I am just like a dad. I'm not drinking and everything's just how I thought it would be. And she came home, and we were sitting at the kitchen table, and she walked in, and she said, Who's this? I said, Say hi to Mom. (laughs) She was very upset, very very upset with me. But, you know, what are we going to do with him then? And we kept him for two years. And that night, when he was there, I was drunk and I fell down the basement stairs. It didn't work. That was supposed to be my answer. I tried things. If I had a child, see, I I wouldn't drink like that. And I remember he raced down the stairs after me and he tried to help, help me get up. And he said, you're a drunk just like my dad. He knew. He's now a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. But it took him a long time to find the program but I'm really grateful that he did. Another one of my hobbies was getting those looks of contempt. And I can't remember a lot of things about my drinking, but I can remember those looks that people would give me, those knowing looks of what the hell is wrong with you. What is wrong with you? I'd get them from bartenders. I got them from my dog. My dog would look at me like, are you kidding me? What is wrong with you? I had an old um, Shasta grape soda can, and, and I'd be at home, and I'd run out of, out of beer. And uh, I didn't want to be seen walking down the street with the last beer in my, in my hand. I, I don't want to be known that way. So I'd 
pour the last of that beer in that soda can and I'd walk to the 7-Eleven quick trip, whatever the hell it's called now, on, on 66th and Blondo and and the same guy was working there all the time. He must have worked 80 or 90 hours a week. or so. He was always the same guy. And I see him today. He works at Walmart on 168th and Maple. He doesn't remember me, but I remember him. And I can remember going in there with my pennies and nickels and dimes and quarters to buy one more quart of Old Milwaukee, hoping that that would be enough. Will this just be enough? And I'd go behind there and I'd open it and pour it in the, that old grape can and I'd keep that, that old Milwaukee in the sack because I don't want people to see me with it, you know. And I'd, I'd walk home and I'd, I'd hope it was enough. Can it just please be enough today? But I can remember as I would sort my pennies and nickels and dimes and I'd glance up at him and he would have that look on his face, that look of contempt that look of knowing that we as alcoholics would get all the time. All the time. I was teaching at that Catholic high school, and I had partied overnight. I had stayed out, hadn't come home. I was wearing the same clothes I'd worn taught in the day before, and I, uh, I had the shakes pretty bad. And, you know, I've got to do my job. I have to teach these kids. So I didn't have any alcohol in the car, but it happened to be a Catholic high school, so we have alcohol in the chapel. So I go down there, and I'm taking some big slugs of of alcohol out of that communion wine, out of that big jug, and that nun caught me. And that bitch told. She couldn't wait to run her little butt out of there and just go tell on me. So then I'm in the principal's office and the superintendent's there and the damn nun is there. I don't know what, I still to this day don't know why she had to be there. But I'm there and they're looking at me. They, how do you defend this? 10 o'clock in the morning, Mr. Hoppy, and you are drinking communion wine in the chapel. Okay. And my best defense, this is what I told them, it's only communion wine. That was the best I could do. They said, you just need to teach out your contract and you can't be here anymore. And so I did. Didn't need them anyway. Didn't need them anyway. For the last 22 years, I've taught college. I'm a college professor. For 20 of those years, I taught in an education and psychology department, teaching people how to become exemplary high school teachers. You can't get from where I was to where I am. You can't do it. Today I teach in a graduate program. You can't get from where I was to where I am, only by the grace of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the only way. It's a miracle for me. It really is. And to have the opportunity to do something that I love so much. A couple of my former students are here tonight. And I'm, I'm so always so proud to see them and know they're good members of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I, uh, I get those look of contempt. I, I, I couldn't figure out how to do the things that other people did um, 
you know, I got that, my 6th DWI, and two weeks later the wife left and left me, and that was really my idea. I told her to go, and we had done this stuff enough. And I couldn't figure out what day to put my garbage out. Now, I know that, you know, I couldn't even figure out to watch when everybody else put their cans out. That would be a clue. Go put your garbage out. I couldn't do that. I couldn't figure out how to mow my lawn. I couldn't figure out, you know, because, you know, I'd have every intention. I was going to work. I would then stop and drink for a while. Come on. And then I would come home and mow the lawn. My problem was work, drink, 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 last call, no mow. And so I had the county health department. Somebody turned me into the weed people. And so they came and put a thing on my door about, you know, that I needed to mow my lawn or they were going to come and mow it and charge me money or some stupid threat, you know. And so I had every intention of mowing the lawn the next day. Unfortunately, work, 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 drink, 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 last call, home. And so it's about 115, 130 in the morning. I get home and I decide I'm going to mow my lawn. And so I have a flashlight with the magnets on it and that goes right on that handle, give me enough light to mow and I'm out there and the lawn is, it's really long. And so I'd push it and it would kill and I'd back it up and start it and push it and it would kill and I'd back it up and start it and then drink and then push it and it'd kill and then back it up and drink and start it. You know, I wasn't too good on the order of things, but you have the idea of what was going on. And someone called the police. I mean, I can't please anyone. Here, I am trying, trying my hardest to do the right thing here and mow the lawn. Probably that same damn neighbor that called the weed people. Now I'm trying to mow and they still call the police. And those two police officers come strolling up the driveway and they said, what are you doing? I said, I'm mowing my lawn. What does it look like I'm doing? They would ask me these stupid questions. And I can remember that look on their face like it was today. Like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? They just said, you can't do this tonight. You can't mow. You need to go inside. Oh, okay. Those are the kind of things that happened. I'd get those looks of contempt from complete strangers. I would get those looks of contempt from people in bars that I wasn't even drinking with, and they would give me that look, that knowing look of what in the hell is wrong with him. And I remember those looks. Some of them were pretty hurtful. Good reason to drink a little more. Good, good damn reason. My last week of drinking, that week in January of 1984, it was a very warm January. I had quit my job just before I got fired, another one of those, you know, I could see the end coming. One month I would get Employee of the Month Award, and the next month I would get the letter saying improve or you can't work here anymore kind of letter. 
and then I would just, I would just work just circles around everybody else and be back on track, and then I'd be way off track again because I couldn't get it figured out. I just couldn't do that. And so I knew that they were going to fire me, so I showed them I quit and took my last paycheck and paid tuition to go to UNO in their graduate program because I go to school very well, bought a new backpack, got my books, and I'm not going to drink. I'm going to be a college student again. Everything's going to be fine, thank you. And the first day, I get up, I go to school. It was on a Monday. I don't drink before I go to school. I go to my classes. I come home. I drink. Next day, I don't have classes, so I drink all day. The next day is a Wednesday, and my Wednesday morning class had been canceled, so I didn't have to be there until, I think, 12 or 1. So I start drinking a little, you know, because I'm reading. And, God, how boring is this reading if you're not drinking? And so, of course, you know, by the time I get to school, I'm, I'm, I've had quite a bit to drink. And um, even in, in 1984, the parking was horrendous at UNO. <laughs> horrendous. So I park my car. I walk across campus. I'm carrying my books. I have my backpack full of beer because you never know. And I'm going into the, the building, and it was a double set of doors, and as I'm walking in there, I realize I don't know where I just parked my car. I can't remember. And I panicked. My God, i got to have my car, and I can't remember where I just parked my car. And people are trying to get past me, and I, 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 I got out of there, and I went down to Memorial Park and sat under those big pine trees and drank the beer in my backpack uh, and then finally walked back to the entrance on Dodge where I think I came in at and walked until I found my car and drove home. That was the best I could do. That was, that was the best I could do. Didn't go to class. Got drunk. This wasn't supposed to happen. This wasn't the solution. My solution was if I went to school, everything would be fine. The next day was a Thursday. That's a non-school day, so that's a drinking day if you're keeping track of the calendar. And I had one friend left, Herb. Herb was my friend. And in a blackout, I had spray-painted obscenities all over the kitchen cupboards. It was a beautiful house, I want you to know. And um, Herb called and he said, Dave, I'm going to take you to a movie. Just please don't be drinking. We'll go to the afternoon matinee at the Westroads. Just please don't be drinking. Of course I'm drinking. He comes and picks me up. We get to the West Roads, and he can't keep track of me. I'm pretty slippery. I make a beeline for the lower level of the West Roads where there was the revolving door lounge. I had drank quite a bit there. It's not there anymore, but it was there then. And I'm drinking down there, and Herb's trying to get me out of there to get me to the matinee, and finally he does, and he gets me up, and he said, just stand here while I buy the tickets. And so he went to get the tickets, and I panicked because I knew I could not go into the movie because I didn't have anything with me to drink. And when he came back with the tickets, I said, I, you have to take me home. And he said, no, we're going to the movie. Just, just come on, you'll be fine. Just come in and sit down and, and enjoy the movie. And I, I said, if you won't take me home, I'll walk home. So that would be from West Roads to 68th and Maple. I started across the parking lot, and Herb came and picked me up and, and took me home. 
on the way home, I, I convinced him to, to stop and get me something else to drink, and, and I, I drank a little bit more on the way home. When we got home, I don't know how long he was there, and I, I went into a blackout. I don't know what happened, but evidently I threatened to stab him, and I did not see her, my only friend, for 10 years. I was then working, and I, he came in, and I was able to make amends to him. Um, and I, I was able to do that. Those are the kind of, kind of things that happened to me. In October of, of 1983, I was diagnosed with Kursakoff syndrome, wet brain. I had went to my doctor. I said, I'm having trouble remembering things. I can't, can't seem to focus. He ran me through a battery of tests, and he didn't know a great deal I know now about alcoholism. But he said, you have to get help. You have to go to AA. You need to go to treatment. You, he laid out all of these things. I thought he was wacky. Um, and I saw him the next week again because I was, I was having some more physical problems. And he had figured out that I had really been lying to him for quite a while. And he fired me as his patient. I am not going to treat you anymore. You're a liar and you're an alcoholic. He had his nurse drive me to the emergency room at Methodist Hospital where she informed them that he was no longer my doctor. Great. Great. That's nice. When I got sober, I went back to him after I'd been sober for a few months, and he showed me the chart where he had written hopeless alcoholic life expectancy less than two years. I had also told him, this was October, I had, and he had written the quote down, says, cannot, drink, cannot stop drinking because the holidays are coming up. I mean, who can go through Christmas and New Year's without drinking? I mean, are you kidding me? It was the best I could do. The best I could do. The next day, it was Friday, didn't go to school, and it was a warm day. I had the window open in the kitchen, and uh, I could hear this whistling Outside, and it was the mailman. And in my deluded, drunken state, I thought the mailman was making fun of me because he was bringing bills to my house and he knew I didn't have any money. And I threatened to kill him. I threatened to kill the mailman. The police came. They took me to Methodist Richard Young, Dick's place downtown that's now gone. I talked to a lady there for less than five minutes. She said, you're an alcoholic. Do you have any money? Do you have any insurance? No, no. Then you need to go to some place called St. Gabriel's. And she wrote all the information down and she said, you can go. I can go? Yep, you can go. This is your referral. Well, I don't need to go anywhere except home. So I went home. Didn't get any help. None. A lot of people say, why didn't, when all you got all those DWIs and, and got arrested, why didn't, they, why didn't they sentence you to Alcoholics Anonymous? That's what they do now, don't they? Our meetings are filled with, with people who get sentenced to Alcoholics Anonymous. They just didn't do that then. They, they, just, they just didn't do that. On that 60 DWI at .38, I'm in that courtroom. And that judge, you know, when I'm in the court, I should never be in the ju judge in legal system. I have a bad attitude and a bad mouth, okay? 
I had 10 tickets for leaving the scene of property damage accidents, .38 DWI, first offense, thank God. I had to hire the lawyer for the Omaha Police Union, cost me $5,000 at that time, to make sure that the police officers did not show up in court so that they dropped all of the tickets for leaving the scene of property damage accidents. All of them went away. It was straightforward, first DWI. And I'm in there, and when others are in court, they kind of mumble in the microphone, this is the case, I guess, I guess, When I'm in court, it's the state of Nebraska versus David Hoppy. You know, it's like, you know. So I'm, I go up there, and my attorney has said, don't say anything. Don't talk. Don't say anything. So I'm standing there with him, and judge why they put him up in the air, you know, to make you feel worse, and, you know, and he looks down at me, and he's reading through this stuff for everybody to hear in the audience, you know. It says here, Mr. Hoppy, your blood alcohol was .38. Do you think you have a problem with alcohol? Lawyer looked at me and said, you can answer that. Go ahead. I said, no. And everybody in the crowd started laughing. (laughs) I turned around. I gave them a dirty look. Didn't even know me. That's hurtful. It was very hurtful. (laughs) Laughing at me. I'm being honest. I don't have a problem with alcohol, okay? So let's just move on here. Nothing to see here. That judge had sentenced me to AA. When I got to the probation officer, the assistant, his assistant, the bailiff or whoever had not written it on the order, if it's not on the order, you don't have to do it. Probation officer said, you really need to go. I said, okay. I'm not going to A&A. Are you kidding me? So that Friday night, I get home from, from Dick's place there, and I, I had been drinking the rest of the day, and I know I'm going to throw up, and I don't see any really need to go in the bathroom. It's not like I hadn't thrown up on that beautiful shag carpeting before. And so I threw up on Britain. The next morning, I went to that first meeting at 48th Street Chapter. And I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I, I knew nothing. I knew nothing. And in some cases, I consider myself that, that was, I'm very grateful for not having known anything. I had no expectations. I walked in there, and uh, I, I'm standing kind of in the doorway on that first floor, and there's a little coffee bar over here. And, The lady running the coffee bar obviously knows everybody, and she said, you're new, the first cup of coffee's on the house. And so I I stepped in front of her to to reach for the coffee, and my hands were were shaking terribly. And she said, you'll need a saucer. And she she put the coffee on the saucer, and there was a, a baby in a car seat there on the table. And the baby was asleep. And I said to the lady, who would bring a baby in here with these people? She said, that's my baby. That was my introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, where's this meeting at? She said, it's upstairs. You go up the stairs. I said, I can't go up the stairs. I can't see the door. I'm a bar drinker. I have to know where the door is all the time. 
can't see the door. She said, then you can just sit down. So I went and sat at one of the little tables looking pitiful. And people come in and they were laughing, you know how you are, and they were going upstairs and you could hear the hee-hee, tee-hee thing going on before the meeting stuff. And and so I I don't know why, but I, I walked up the stairs and I sat in the back I have no idea what what they said in that meeting. I'd like to tell you I I do, but I have no idea. People later told me I had my shirt on backwards and I only had one sock on. (laughs) I wasn't doing very well. I thought I was doing so well. (laughs) Evidently not. At the end of the meeting, everybody jumps up. You know how you are, and you're all pawing at me, trying to grab me and hold me and do things with my hands, and I'm not touching any of you. And and they started this this praying thing, and I jettisoned down the stairs and out the door and got in my car and drove home. Oh, my God, what has just happened to me? What had happened to me? I took a nap, and that night I went back to a meeting. My first 90 days, I went to 306 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was unemployed and unemployable. I lived in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was the only place that I knew I would not drink. Now, I didn't want anybody to know who I was. And then in those meetings, they would go around and introduce yourself. (laughs) That's a problem. Now, my name is Dave, okay? It's not like... You know, I'm just Dave. But I don't want to tell any of you people that. So I always made sure I sat next to a man, and whatever his name was, that was my name. (laughs) Because I am so goofed up, I can't think of a name by myself. So if I'm sitting next to Bob, my name's Bob. If I'm sitting next to John, my name's John. And I'm going to all these meetings, and people are going... Wasn't his name John? And I, you know, I'm just looking as pissed off and angry as I can to keep people away from me, you know, because that works. You know, if you look like you're just going to fly apart, you know, people don't don't come near you. And I'm I'm not staying for the prayer. I'm just running out at the end because I'm not touching any of you, but I'm I'm there. Now, I, you know, we talk about those people. Okay, I am a weirdo. I am the weirdo. I am the new weird guy in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's me. I took some things. I I went to one department store and bought things on my credit card, and I returned them at another store for cash. And I took some money, and I went to the thrift stores in Benson, and I bought work shirts whose names had been stitched on them. I bought a bowling shirt that said Hal. <laughs> it's my favorite. I've got all these shirts with all these different people, men's names on them, and I'd wear them proudly. And then I'm, I'm giving people another name. I am anonymous from the get-go. And I can kind of tell people are kind of talking about me, but I don't care. I understand autonomy. So I'm not talking to anybody. People would would try to talk to me. I'm not talking. I'd been sober two weeks to the day, and and three guys stopped me on the stairs before I could go down the stairs and out the door at the 48th chapter house. And they said, 
we don't know what's wrong with you, but we're going to talk to you. <laughs> and they took me to this little crap hole room in, upstairs in 48th Street on the way back to the bathroom. They called it the library. It's a stupid little room. And, and Jim and Tom and Tony said, we're going to help you. We don't know what's wrong with you, but we're pretty sure you're an alcoholic. Huh. And they said, what's your real name? <laughs> that was their first question. What, what's your real name? Because I got a shirt with one name. I've already introduced myself with another name. My name's Dave. I don't think they believed me. <laughs> and they made me their personal little project. That was me. I was their personal little project. And Jim lived in a, in a, a, a garage apartment over on North 38th Street. And, and I would go there and, and I, I, w I couldn't even hardly talk. I was so goofed up. And, and he would say, you don't need to talk. You just sit here. And I would just sit there. They would take me to coffee, and they would say, we think this is Dave. He's... He's not able to talk yet. And one of them had a girlfriend, and she said, you know, Dave, you need to wash your clothes. She goes, if you bring your clothes to me, I will wash them for you. And she washed my clothes for me because I didn't have time. I was busy. <laughs> if you can't put your garbage out and mow your lawn drunk, you're not going to do laundry sober. I'm not very good at this. And so I, uh, I, they, they just carried me along. And we, we would go to coffee at JB, JB's Big Boy on Farnham Street, and we would... We would go to meetings, and, and we, we would just, they just, they fed me, they, they talked to me, they, they were nice to me, and they, they told me about themselves, and, and I, I, they'd ask me, but I could tell they really weren't too interested about me, because they didn't know if they would, could believe me. I, I knew that. I was sober about, about two months, and and uh, took some risks and, and told him I was in really pretty serious financial problems because I had made a house payment for a long time and didn't have a job and, and so forth. And really, at, at two months sober, I still wasn't able to work. And, and, uh, and so they said, well, you need roommates. We'll, we'll find your roommates. And, uh, and Craig and, and Dan were in AA and they were looking for a place to live and, and they became my first two roommates in my house. And Phil came along and Phil was in a meeting and he said, I don't have any place to stay tonight. I, I'm, I think I have an apartment tomorrow. Can I stay with you? And I said, sure. And, and he slept on the couch that night and he lived there almost two years. And I want you to know that that was the absolute best start to Alcoholics Anonymous I could have gotten was living with other sober guys in our house, going to meetings, talking, uh, having fun. Do, we always had some place to go, and we always had at least one or two newcomers in our house. 
guys that would get kicked out of halfway houses, guys that would, would run from halfway houses, guys that would be in a meeting and didn't have any place to go. We brought them all home. They were like our pets. <laughs> they were wonderful. And I'm always talking to the newcomer. I'm always, always talking about, about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I knew about this much. Okay? But my goodness, what a way to learn it. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And I'm very, very lucky I had that opportunity. Very lucky, and I know that. I know that. I'm about a year sober, and um, I'm, I went to this meeting at, at 48th Street, and there was this uh, young lady there, and uh, so I, I kind of started eyeing her. I knew she was eyeing me, too. And so we were, we were, we were doing some flirting back and forth, I don't have very good bait at this time, uh, and I knew she obviously was a little bit younger than I was, and I remember she came to that meeting and she said, I got a new car. Everybody, come look out the window at my new car. I still have that drunk car with the headlights wired in, you know, <laughs> that I had to adjust by adjusting the wire on the inside because they would shine on your feet. You know, I have no grill, no bumper, you know, missing one fence. It was, it was ugly. And, and I think, oh, once again, you know, look at this. This is what I have, and, and she just got a new car. Eventually it became my car. But um, <laughs> we, uh, we, we had coffee one night, and, and uh, our, our very first date was at my sponsor now when, when he got married at, at his rehearsal dinner. And uh, we'll be married 25 years this October. We had one of those big AA weddings. You can't tell the drunks from the civilians at those, those things, can you? I mean, we, we really look good. We clean up good. We act good. It was a great time. It was a, a, a wonderful, wonderful time. And... Uh, and, you know, I'd like to tell you that, you know, it's all been roses and skipping along, but that's not really the case. Not really the case. But it's been good. There are some things that I have done in Alcoholics Anonymous that um, have been important to me. I have never taken a vacation from Alcoholics Anonymous. I have always went continuously to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and that has really saved my, my, my bacon a few times. It really has. That home group has been my home group since that second week that I got sober. The last time I missed my home group meeting was in October of 2003. I have been there every Sunday night since then. In 27 and a half years, I have missed my home group 13 times because that's what I was taught you get a home group, and you go. I have been the setup guy. Thank God we don't wash ashtrays anymore. But I have been the setup guy, the coffee guy for that meeting for this whole darn time. And that way I know that that meeting's going to be open and there's going to be coffee and there's going to be chairs. And that's really important to me because that's my home group. That's my home group. I have an investment there. And it's very, very important to me that it's that way. So I'm there. We plan family things around, well, you know where Dad's going to be. 
no one even plans anything because they know. They just know I'm going to be in my home group on Sunday night. You might plan something else. That's really fine, but I'm probably not going. I won't be there because I have a commitment. And you people taught me to keep those commitments. If you say you're going to be somewhere, you're there. If you're supposed to do something, you better damn well do it. That's just the way it is. It's, It's not either or. Just not. Um, I I used to be known in my early sobriety as the guy that sponsored the guys who got their girlfriends pregnant. (laughs) One time I was sponsoring about 40 young men, somewhere between the ages of 16 and 30, every one of them fertile as the day was long. They could roll over and get a stranger pregnant. It was, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. One of the guys I sponsor now got a married woman pregnant. Now this was just, it was, you know, that was a new one for me. That was a new one. We had to do some, do a little studying on this. Sponsors in AA would call me and they'd say, I don't know you. Are you the guy that sponsors guys that gets women pregnant? Yeah, that's me. Oh, good. I don't know what to do. <laughs> There's a great thing to be known known for, but that was that was kind of how it was. I've always sponsored guys in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it, it's it's been been wonderful. I have heard two or three hundred fifth steps in in my my sobriety, and what an honor it is to participate with another man at that level, uh, and I consider it to be an honor. Many years ago, Katie from the central office called me and she said, David, I, I, I'm so glad you're home. There's a trucker at Sap Brothers on 144th and I-80. He needs to do his fifth step. Would you go there and listen? I said, oh, sure. I drove down there and I'd never been in one of those big trucks and, and he jumped out and helped me get up in the big truck and introduced himself with his first name and we said a quick prayer and he did his fifth step and and that was it. And I got in my car and I drove away and he drove away. And I never heard from him again. I didn't expect to. But what an honor. What an honor. And that man, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, could say he did his fifth step in Omaha. You know, I... I wasn't the guy that was invited places. I wasn't the guy that, that you wanted to, to include in family events. In my last Christmas of, of 1983, they told me, we don't want you to come anymore. You, you ruin our holidays. And I would. I would. That's not true anymore. My mother died in 1977. My mother was an alcoholic doesn't mean that that's why I'm an alcoholic, but it didn't help. didn't help. She had three brothers. All three of them died alcoholic deaths. One cirrhosis of the liver. One froze to death on the streets of Chicago. He was a bum, rolled off of the grate on the sidewalk and froze to death. And the other one drove his car drunk into the side of a train on Thanksgiving morning when he was 18 years old. Alcoholism runs rampant through my family. Rampant. Having nephews going through the same thing now, just just the way it is, just the way it is. Alcoholism is a sneaky damn deal, sneaky deal. It, 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 
it, it just will, will just get people. And it certainly has gotten the people in my family. My mother died of cancer. And I went to see her, and she took my hand, and she said, David, please promise me you'll stop drinking. With all my heart, I, I love my mother more than anything. And I, I said, Mom, I promise I'll stop drinking. And I was drunk at her funeral because I'm an alcoholic, and I didn't have the power. But you people have given me the power today. I have the power in my life today, and I hang on to it so desperately because I know I know how quickly that can go away. It wasn't that I didn't mean that promise to my mom. I meant it with all my heart, but I couldn't keep it. Couldn't keep it. Eight years ago, I go to the optometrist to get some new contact lenses. Life is going just fine, thank you. Just fine. We got a couple kids. They were fine. Terry's fine. We're fine. Things are going along. We have a nice house. House doesn't look like alcoholics live there. Lots of flowers. Lawn mowed. Garbage out every week. You know, doesn't look like the alcoholics live there on the block. Um, and um, the optometrist says, "Well, we have to dilate your eyes." Well, first that little optical aide said, we have to dilate your eyes, and I convinced her that I didn't need to do that. And, and she went and tattled on me to the optometrist, and he said, I, we have to dilate your eyes. And so, it, okay. So they dilated my eyes, and he looks in my eye, and looks in my other eye, and looks in my eye, and looks in my eye, and looks in my eye, and leans back, and he said, there's something in your eye. I'm not sure what it is. I'm not trained to know this, but you have to come back tomorrow and see the ophthalmologist. Okay, can I have my prescription? Because if you give me that, I won't be back. He said, uh, I didn't, he knew. And he said, no, the ophthalmologist will give that to you tomorrow. So I go back the next day, they dilate my eyes, he looks in my eye, and he looks in my eye, and he looks in my eye, and he sits back, and he said, you have a tumor in your right eye. I've only seen this twice, I'm not sure. Uh, but I could tell from how he was talking that it was something he was worried about. He said, you have to see the retinal specialist. Okay, so they, we go out. They're trying to make an appointment. They're talking about weeks, months. Getting into a retinal specialist is very difficult. The big doctor comes out, gets on the phone, and hangs up and says, 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. Now I think it's bad. Now I'm worried. Go to that doctor. They do all kinds of tests. And he, my wife and I are sitting there, and he said, you have cancer. You have cancer of the eye, ocular melanoma. He said, I've, I've seen very little of this. I have an appointment for you next week at the Mayo Clinic because no one here there's, treats this in Omaha, and you will go there. I have no symptoms. I can see fine. And that's hard to accept. A week later, we're at the Mayo Clinic, go through all the tests again. This doctor is old. He is a million years old. Terry and I are sitting in his office. And we're looking at his diplomas. I'm telling her, I said, I think he's 78 or 79. He was every minute that old, every minute. And his whole office is filled with bricks. Stacks and stacks of bricks. People brought him bricks from all over the world because he was one of the very few people that treated ocular melanoma. He was an ocular oncologist, eye cancer. 
We go through the tests. He said, here's your options. We can remove your eye or we can radiate your eye and you'll lose your vision. What do you want to do? Long-term prognosis is the same. This is a terrible cancer. This is a cancer that's never in remission, and this is a cancer that is very, very serious. Well, I want door number three. Do you know how many people I have sponsored in Alcoholics Anonymous? Do you know? Do you know? You don't know. You're, look, I have done my stuff, and this is the options I have. So I, I said, can we wait till Christmas? He said, I have you scheduled in the operating room next week. So the next week, I'm there. And they radiated the tumor in my eye. And about five years ago, I lost all the vision in my right eye in just a few hours. All of the structures inside my eye collapsed while I was driving. So can't see you. <laughs> so we have, my family is all trained not to come up on that side. This weekend has been very difficult for me. In crowds, it's very, very difficult for me because people are always right here, and I can't see you. I, I can't. And I'm, I'm so cognizant about not running into you and hitting you. Um, that adjustment for losing my vision, you have two eyes for 55 years, and then you go to one eye in one day, is a, is a terrible adjustment. Uh, just cover one eye while you're trying to drive home tonight, and you'll know, you'll know how difficult it is. Depth perception changes dramatically. I, I have a very difficult time pouring anything. I trip all the time. You know, all of, all of these kinds of things. I drive very little at night. It's like my wife is driving Miss Daisy. Um, but that's just the way it is. Just the way it is. The eye cancer always mets, always metastasizes to the liver. Isn't that great? The worst place it can go Liver, that's where it goes. So last October, we went for a checkup. Things are going pretty good. I've been clear all these years. Everything is fine. And they say, you have lesions in your liver. This is bad. They didn't even wait to set me up with the oncologist. They said, you're going to have biopsy on Tuesday, and the oncology department will give you the results. Great. Great. I knew. I knew. Because... If you have this, you just know. Lesions show up in your liver, tumors in your liver, that's where the cancer is. And there are no treatments. It's all experimental for ocular melanoma. So long drive back to Omaha, long drive back to Minnesota, and have the biopsies. They have a very difficult time getting the needle in for the biopsies. My, the little biopsy guy, the doctor, is on top of me while I am laying on the gurney and, you know, trying to push, trying to get what he needs to get for the biopsies. He's like right here, and he's watching the screen and moving a needle around. It was pretty amazing. The next day we get the results. The, ocular, the oncologist, the family oncologist that I was seeing said, you know, we don't get to give very good news in this area. Mr. Hoppy, these are benign. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So, you know... We go um, every six months, every three months, every nine months, you know. But Alcoholics Anonymous, you have taught me how to do this. You, you have taught me what to do. Left to my own devices, I'd pretty much just not like to go, thank you. Just not like to go. But that's not what you taught me. 
I didn't think I would live to see my son graduate from high school. Yet he did. He did. And a month ago, my wife and I walked our daughter down the aisle. Big, big wedding. All the musicians were in Alcoholics Anonymous. The civilians didn't know that. And mom and dad, we don't look like alcoholics. We look like the mom and dad of the bride. And it was a wonderful event. Wonderful event. I've got lots of things left to do. And I'm going to do them as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you.